Section four of a life's morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. A life's morning by George Gissing. Section four. Chapter three. Part one. Lyrical. Miss Hood did not, of course, dine with the family, though, as Mrs. Russell said, it was a distinct advantage to have in the house a governess whom one could in many respects treat as an equal yet there was naturally a limit in this as in all other matters we have not yet either in fact or in sentiment quite outgrown the social stage in which personal hiring sets on the hired a stigma of servitude mrs rossall was not unaware that in all that concerned intellectual refinement her governess was considerably superior to herself and in personal refinement not less a lady but the fact of quarterly payments spite of all this inevitably indicated a place below the salt mr athel though as we have seen anxious to indulge himself in humane regard whenever social regulations permitted was the last man to suffer in his household serious innovations upon traditional propriety so miss hood emily as she was called by the little group of people away in yorkshire to whom she was other than a governess emily as we will permit ourselves to call her henceforth always had the meal of tea with the children after that the evening was her own save that the twins kept her company until their hour of bedtime the schoolroom was also her sitting-room after half-past eight in the evening she had it to herself and there she passed many an hour of quiet content playing softly on the piano reading dreaming in the matter of books she was well off mr athel and his sister had subscriptions to several london libraries and of these the governess was invited to make free use it was some restraint upon her that her choice of reading always passed under mrs rossall's eyes but not so much after the first few weeks the widow was by this time well advanced in the resumption of purely mundane literature and the really liberal tone which prevailed in the house removed apprehension in the pursuit of modern studies for it was rather an ideal towards which she was working than an attainment in fact that eclecticism of which she spoke to wilfrid athel the monthly library lists which came under her eyes offered many a sore temptation she was true on the whole to her system she did not read at random and never read frivolously but a taste strongly directed to the best in literature will find much in the work of our day, especially its criticism, which is indispensable as guidance, or attractive by its savour. This was not Emily's first access, fortunately, to the streams of contemporary thought. Already she had enjoyed and largely used opportunities of the most various reading. She was now able to choose with discretion and in a great degree to make her studies serve directly the scheme of culture which she had devised for herself. Few governesses had so pleasant a life. Mrs. Rossall, supported by her brother's views, imposed on her children a minimum of brainwork. Bodily health was, after all, the first thing, especially in the case of girls. A couple of hours' school in the morning, one hour given to preparation of lessons after tea, this for the present was deemed quite enough. Your companionship throughout the day will always be forming their minds, Mrs. Russell said in one of her earliest conversations with Emily. It was pleasantly put, and truer than it would have been in the case of many instructresses. 
The twins were not remarkably fond of their lessons, but in Emily's hands they became docile and anxious to please. She had the art of winning their affection without losing control over them. Had Mrs. Russell's rather languid habits of mind allowed her to give attention to the subject, she would have been struck with the singular combination of tenderness and reverence which the two entertained toward their teacher. Little laxities of behaviour and phrase upon which their mother's presence would be no check, they did not venture to allow themselves when with Emily. Her only reproof was a steady gaze, eloquent of gentleness, but it proved quite sufficient. The twins were, in truth, submitting to the force of character. They felt it without understanding what it meant. One other person in the house experienced the same influence, but in his case it led to reflection. Wilfrid was at Balliol when Miss Hood first arrived. He saw her for the first time when he came to town after his collapse. All hastened away to the firs together. Wilfrid suffered no positive illness. He shared in the amusements of the family, and, with the exception of a good deal of pishing and shawing at the restraints put upon him, had the appearance of one taking an ordinary holiday. There was undeniable truth in Beatrice Redwing's allusion to his much talking. Without social intercourse, he would soon have become ill in earnest. Association with intelligent, or the better if argumentative, people was an indispensable condition of his existence. In his later school and early college days, this tendency to give free utterance to his thoughts made him not altogether the most delightful of companions, to such as were older than himself. His undeniable cleverness and the stores of knowledge he had already acquired needed somewhat more of the restraint of tact than his character at that time supplied. People occasionally called him a prig. Now and then he received what the vernacular of youth terms a sitting upon. The saving feature of his condition was that he allowed himself to be sat upon gracefully. A snub well administered to him was sure of its full artistic and did not fail in its moral effect. There was no vulgar insolence in the young fellow. What he received he could acknowledge that he deserved. A term or two at Balliol put this right. In mingling with some that were his equals, and one or two who were his superiors, he learned prudence in the regulation of his speech. For a brief time he perhaps talked not quite so much. When his set was formed, the currents of argument and rhetoric had once more free course, but they were beginning to flow less turbidly. His nature, as we know, was not merely vehement. He had the instincts of a philosophical inquirer, and his intellect speedily outgrew the stage of callowness. When he came down for his first long, the change in him was so marked that it astonished all who met him. That he appeared wholly unconscious of the ripening he had undergone only made his development more impressive. He had gone away a boy, and returned a man. He talked no less than ever, but in a markedly improved tone. He was graver, more seemly in the buoyant outbreaks in which he still occasionally indulged. One reason of his rapid maturing, no doubt, lay in the fact that he was already working too hard. His sprightliness was in a measure subdued by wear of tissue. His father was shrewd enough to suspect something of this, but it was difficult to interfere in any way. A month in Switzerland seemed to set things right. On the present more serious occasion, it had been deemed better not to set forth on a journey forthwith. Perfect repose at the house in Surrey was all that was advised in the first instance, 
but it was clear that Wilfrid must have someone to talk with. A succession of visits from such friends as were available was speedily arranged. By the end of the first week, Wilfrid had accommodated himself to his circumstances. His fretting at the regulations imposed for his health almost ceased. At first this change was viewed with suspicion, especially when he became more absorbed in reflectiveness, and seemed to have less taste for conversation. However, he was perfectly cheerful. There were no further symptoms to excite alarm, nor did the brooding period last very long. The only permanent change was that he ceased to grumble at his hard lot, and appeared to find his position very tolerable. "'It is the physical reaction,' observed Mr. Athel to his sister. "'The body is indulging itself. Recovery of health absorbs his energies.' Opportunities for anything like sustained converse with Miss Hood, Wilfrid found very few and far between. Only once before the long talk in the hollow had he been able to gratify his curiosity, perhaps already some other feeling, in a dialogue of any intimacy. In a situation such as this, delicacy prescribed a very rigid discretion. Emily, moreover, was not facile of approach. Throughout the day she was scarcely away from the children. Of course he could, and did often, exchange words with her in the presence of the twins, but he felt himself held at a distance by a tact which was perfect, without undue reserve, without a shadow of unrefined manoeuvring. Emily limited their intercourse in precisely the way that Mr. Athel or Mrs. Russell would have deemed becoming. Then there were almost always guests at the house. With prudent regard to the character of these visitors, Mrs. Russell chose opportunities for inviting the governess to the drawing-room during the evening. But Emily was not wholly at her ease under such conditions, and Wilfrid was withheld by only half-conscious motives from talking with her at these times. He shrank from subjecting himself to examination whilst encouraging her to speak on the subjects he would naturally choose. He felt, too, that she desired him not to address her, though this perception came to him in subtle ways of which he could render to himself no account. For all this their acquaintance, nay, their intimacy, grew. If ever eyes habitually expressed a self-respecting frankness, if ever any were incapable of ennoble artifice, they were Emily's. Yet as time went on, Wilfred began to long for the casual meeting with her glance, for the mere reason that he felt it as an exchange of words between her and himself. Thus it was that, when at length the first real conversation came, it seemed the sequel of many others, seemed so to both of them. They had divined each other. Speech did but put the seal of confirmation on knowledge gained by mutual sympathy. It may be presumed that neither Mr. Athel nor Mrs. Russell was altogether regardless of possibilities suggested by the abiding beneath the same roof of an impetuous young man forced into idleness and a girl who was above the average in mental endowments, whilst on the whole she might be considered interesting in appearance. They exchanged no remark on the subject. It was scarcely likely they should. But during the first few weeks both were observant. Their observations were reassuring to them, and indeed they had not anticipated trouble, for the simple reason that both believed Wilfrid's affections to tend already in a marked direction, and one of which they altogether approved. That he would some day take for his wife, Beatrice Redwing, was a conclusion upon which father and aunt had settled their minds. The conclusion was reasonable enough, 
and well supported by such evidence as the case admitted. Mr. Athel had at an earlier period entertained certain misgivings as to the desirability of such a marriage, misgivings which had reference to the disastrous story of the Red Wing household. The conception of hereditary tendencies has become a strong force in our time, and pronounced madness in a parent cannot as easily be disregarded as it once was. But the advantages of the alliance were so considerable, its likelihood so indisputable, that prudence had scarcely fair play. Besides, Beatrice had reached her twenty-first year without any sign of mental trouble, and seemed as sound a girl as could anywhere be discovered. The habitual sword-crossing between her and Wilfrid was naturally regarded as their mode of growing endeared to each other. Their intellectual variances could not, by a sober gentleman of eight-and-forty, and by a young widow whose interest in the world was reviving, be regarded as a bar to matrimony. Family, Beatrice would not bring, but she was certain to inherit very large fortune, which, after all, means more than family nowadays. On the whole, it was a capital thing for Wilfrid that marriage should be entered upon in so smooth a way. Mr. Athel was not forgetful of his own course in that matter. He understood his father's attitude, as he could not when resisting it, and was much disposed to concede that there might have been two opinions as to his own proceeding five and twenty years ago. But for Beatrice, the young man's matrimonial future would have been to his father a subject of constant apprehension. As it was, the situation lost much of its natural hazard. In Emily, there was nothing that suggested sentimentality. Rather, one would have thought her deficient in sensibility, judging from the tone of her conversation. She did not freely express admiration, even in the form of assent to what was said by others. To interpret her reticence as shyness was a misunderstanding, or a misuse of words, natural in the case of an inexact observer like Mrs. Russell. Four years ago, when Beatrice met her in Dunfield, her want of self-confidence was pronounced enough. She had, at that time, never quitted her provincial home, and was in the anomalous position of one who is intellectually outgrowing very restricted social circumstances. The Baxendales were not wrong in discussing her as shy, but that phase of her life was now left far behind. Her extreme moderation was deliberate. It was her concession to the fate which made her a governess. Courtesy and kindliness might lead those whose bread she ate to endeavour occasionally to remove all show of social distinction. Neither her temperament nor her sense of comeliness in behaviour would allow her to shrink from such advances, but she could not lose sight of the unreality of the situations to which they led. Self-respect is conditioned by the influence of circumstances on character. In Emily it expressed itself as a subtle sensitiveness to grades of sympathy. She could not shut her eyes to the actuality of things. Sincerity was the foundation of her being, and delicate appreciation of its degrees in others regulated her speech and demeanour, with an exactitude appreciable by those who take life in a rough and ready way. When engaged in her work of teaching, she was at ease. Alone in the room which had been set apart for her, she lived in the freedom of her instincts. But in Mrs. Russell's drawing-room she could only act a part, and all such divergence from reality was pain. It was not that she resented her subordination, for she was almost devoid of social ambitions, and knew nothing of vulgar envy. Still less did it come of reasoned revolt against the artificial ordering of precedences. Emily's thoughts did not tend that way. 
she could do perfect justice to the amiable qualities of those who were set above her she knew no bitterness in the food which she duly earned but by no one's fault there was a vein of untruth in the life she had to lead to remind herself that such untruth was common to all lives was an outcome of the conditions of society did not help her to disregard it nature had endowed her with a stern idealism which would not ally itself with compromise she was an artist in life the task before her a task of which in these days she was growing more and more conscious was to construct an existence every moment of which she should serve an all-pervading harmony the recent birth within her of a new feeling was giving direction and vigour to the forces of her being it had not as yet declared itself as a personal desire it wrought only as an impassioned motive in the sphere of her intellectual aspirations she held herself more persistently apart from conventional intercourse she wished it had been possible to keep wholly to herself in the hours when her services were not demanded mr athel who liked to express himself to young people with a sort of paternal geniality rallied her one day on her excessive study and bade her be warned by a notorious example this had the effect of making her desist from reading in the presence of other people she had known much happiness during these two months at the firs happiness of a kind to dwell in the memory and be a resource in darker days though mere personal ease was little the subject of her thoughts she prized for its effect upon her mind the air of graceful leisure of urbane repose which pervaded the house to compare the firs with that plain little dwelling on the skirts of a yorkshire manufacturing town which she called her home was to understand the inestimable advantage of those born into the material refinement which wealth can command of those who breathe from childhood the atmosphere of liberal enjoyment who walk from the first on clean ways with minds disengaged from anxiety of casual soilure who know not by even domestic story the trammels of sordid preoccupation thus it was with a sense of well-being that she stepped on rich carpets let her eyes wander over the light and dark of rooms where wealth had done the bidding of taste watched the neat and silent ministering of servants these things to her meant priceless opportunity the facilitating of self-culture even the little room in which she sat by herself of evenings was daintily furnished when weary with reading it eased and delighted her merely to gaze at the soft colours of the wallpaper the vases with their growing flowers the well-chosen pictures the graceful shape of a chair she nursed her appreciation of these joys resisted the ingress of familiarity sought daily for novel aspects of things become intimately known she rose at early hours that she might have the garden to herself in all its freshness she loved to look from her window into the calm depths of the summer midnight in this way she brought into consciousness the craving of her soul made the pursuit of beauty a religion grew to welcome the perception of new meaning in beautiful things with a spiritual delight this was the secret of her life which she guarded so jealously which he feared even by chance to betray in the phrasings of common intercourse wilfrid had divined it and it was the secret influence of this sympathy that had led her to such unwonted frankness in their last conversation mrs russell had spoken to her of beatrice redwing's delightful singing and had asked her to come to the drawing-room during the evening 
having declined the afternoon's drive emily did not feel able to neglect this other invitation the day had become sultry towards its close when she joined the company about nine o'clock she found beatrice with mrs russell sitting in the dusk by the open french windows mr athel in the chair just outside and wilfrid standing by him the latter pair smoking the sky beyond the line of dark greenery was still warm with the afterglow of sunset End of section four chapter three part one